You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. We get an opportunity to come to God's Word, so turn again. Let's go to Romans 11 once again. We're in sermon number two in this kind of three as we three sermon as we uh, close out this chapter 11, at least of Romans. So Romans 11, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 32 this morning. In particular, I'm going to read, though, from 25 to 32. While you're on your way there, we've got a picture from, I don't think Tatum is with us today. I'm looking for their normal spot. They're not. But this is from Tatum from last week. I can interpret somewhat. I asked him. I left my notes at the top here. But... Um, He's got, I love God, and there's this boom in there. I think what Tatum was gathering is the, uh, I talked about a magician, kind of how, how Paul is uh, revealing to us God's plan, like the curtain going back, or like the magician, not saying God's a magician, but like, you know, the handkerchief, and then the bird comes out, and, and voila, that kind of idea. Tatum picked up on that, and you've got, there is somewhere in there, I think there's a bird even in there, and there's mystery of God, and it's kind of this, Magic thing going on. So Tatum caught onto that. So appreciate that. It's great. Love those pictures. And um, as you as you do those kids, love that when you turn those in to me. Thank you. Um, okay. So let's go to our text here. We're in verse. I'll start in twenty five again, and I'm going to read to the end. Just worth hearing it all. It's not that long, but our focus will be twenty eight through thirty two. Let's listen to God's word here. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies Of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray again as we dive into God's word. Lord, again, just would pray along with uh, Milt this morning and Brandon. Lord, would you just guide our time in your word? It is your word, and it points us to a holy and majestic God, a sovereign God, really, working in the times of history, working throughout eternity for your plan and your good and right and glorious purposes. Lord, as we're in this tiny section today, in this part of Romans chapter 11, in this part of this book of Romans, and it's expounding, Paul's expounding on this great 
gospel, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, that we might hear a glimpse of gospel power even in what we study today. So guide our hearts, guide our ears, guide our eyes, guide the preacher as well. Lord, guide these things by your spirit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I read the last verses here of chapter 11, we're going to look at them next week, but they're kind of this crescendo of this chapter, maybe even, I would say, of this section that we're in. This, oh, the depth. You just hear kind of this this building. If you're not music people, crescendo is this just building volume and sound to where Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable his ways. And then it really ends with, to him be the glory forever. Looking to the Lord. These, these verses, these last verses, sometimes you may have read them a, a lot. They just don't appear out of nowhere. They're not kind of just put, put haphazard. They come out of a context, and that's where we're in. We've been in chapters 9 through 11, and so kind of even in that context, they're, they're like this drum roll at the end. But specifically here even, I think they come at the end of this, this mystery of God that Paul is revealing that we started to look at last week. And we'll continue here this week. And then next week we'll finish here at the end. But this end gives us a hint to where we're at in verses 28 through 32 today. So in all of what we're reading and studying, the end helps us keep in mind what we're to look for. What are we to look for here? Namely, I think the sovereign, albeit mysterious, the sovereign work of God in salvation. And what we learn here in 28 through 32 tells us something about God's election, his steadfast love, tells us about enemies, the disobedient or the unbelieving. For the saved here, it should lead us to marvel at God's mercy to ones who are so disobedient or disbelieving. They're similar words. For those who are not saved or seem like enemies of God, maybe we know them in our lives, the unsaved, the enemy of God, This passage should also lead us to hope. So I want to look at three parts, 28 through 32, three parts today. In verses 28 and 29, if you had to outline it, I didn't have Khalees put an outline in there, but I think you'd put under the the heading of God's irrevocable election. I'm going to probably say that word wrongly for half of you, and maybe it's right for (laughs) for others of you. It's either irrevocable, which maybe is proper, but I kind of like the irrevocable. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be said. You can... Help me out when this is all over. Keep your comments on that till we're done. But uh, anyway, so God's irrevocable, let's call it that, election. Then verses 30 and 31, God's merciful election. So God's irrevocable election, then God's merciful election, then verse 32, kind of related though, God's sovereign election. God's sovereign election. Let's look at the first, God's irrevocable election starts in verse 28 where Paul says as regards the gospel they are enemies of God for your sake but as regards election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers now context helps us we're talking about Israel I think ethnic Israel in a way here and they're described two ways they're described as both enemies and beloved So here, Israel is no friend at this point, Paul's writing, they're no friend of the gospel. They're called an enemy here. And I think it's safe to say they're foremost, they're an enemy of God. 
I've got an older ESV version that puts of God in there. It's, it's not in the original Greek, so many of yours probably doesn't have of God, enemies of God, but I think that's, the, that's what's meant there. They're not enemies so much of the Gentile, although, you know, they're enemies. They're really enemies of God. What's the most grievous enemy-type action? It's the rejection of the Son of God. It's the rejection of Jesus Christ. And then replacing Christ with works of the law meant to lead to righteousness. So this rejection of Christ. We see in chapter 10, verse 32, that they stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ. So rejection of Jesus is rejection of the gospel, is to be an enemy of God. But then, Paul says this, and he says this to Gentiles. He says, they are enemies for your sake. Enemies for your sake. The phrasing here, it's got the idea of Israel. They are an enemy of God, but it's to the advantage of the Gentiles. It's it's got a result, if you will. Their enemy action is, has a result for the Gentiles. And here again, we're kind of in this territory of verses 11 through 15. Uh, Verse 11, for instance, says, Rather through their trespass, that is Israel's rejection of Jesus, I think is what's meant there, through their trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So through trespass, through enemy actions, salvation comes to the Gentiles. It's just, it's this way of God. And practically here, already, we see just in this one section even of this, of this verse, we see here God uses his very enemies for what? For the salvation of the nations. And God can do anything, and he uses anything, even those who are his foremost enemy, and he uses them for his purposes. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. We can take comfort in that. In anything, whatever news we read, God is sovereign. His purposes will stand. They cannot be thwarted. Okay, so Israel is this enemy. As regards the gospel, they're an enemy of God. And yet, what also is true? Paul says, as regards election, they are beloved. They're beloved. And so Paul frames Israel in terms of their election and, and then their, their being beloved, and it says, on account of or for the sake of their forefathers. And in this last part of verse 28, there's two questions I want to answer. Maybe I won't answer them well, but at least to look at them, maybe questions in your mind as we think about election, beloved, for the sake of their forefathers. Number one, what does election mean here? What's Paul after? And then number two, how are they beloved on account of their forefathers? How does that work? What's, what's that idea going on here? So number one, What does election mean here? Really, the question, does this election refer to national people group, ethnic Israel? When I say that, I think of the people of Israel on the whole. Does it refer to them, or does it refer to someone's individual election, like we've looked at before in Romans? There's Obviously, there's different views on what Paul means here. Uh, The majority view, um, I'm going to differ from, actually. So, but... I think we can say, and you'll hear me kind of go back and forth, because I think there is this back and forth. In light of what Paul says here, what he just said in verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved, I think we could say there's a sense, there's a principle that God has not done with the people of Israel on the whole, the ethnic, the, the whole. God's not done with them. 
But even within our chapter 11 here, verse 2, Paul speaks of those of Israel whom God foreknew. So God foreknew this people, and I think there's a specific type of elective foreknowing there. And then verse 7, even the word elect is used, and and there it seems to have this, this individual chosen by grace idea of salvation. For me, it's it's hard not uh, to go hard not to go far from even chapter nine verse six that talks about where Paul says not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so there's a distinction there between those called unto salvation, and those of just the the ethnic lineage of Israel. That being said, though many many from ethnic Israel they've gone astray, they've rejected their Messiah. And yet Paul, what's his other thrust here? Paul says, don't count them out. Still, there's a plan for them yet. That's what it would seem. So how do we bring these two? I think there's a sense of ethnic Israel, who's elect, God's chosen his people. And, but there's also this narrowing sense of God's salvation, his election of individuals. How do we bring them together? My take would be, just take them both. That's what God's, do we understand all of his ways? They're inscrutable. Take them together in some way. It's almost like the, the fiddle on the, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and then we're out of hand. It's just, I think he's, God's got this. In one way, God is working his salvation for his elect, in the individual salvation. He's doing that. And yet here, I think that elective working, it's also in relation to the people of Israel, this ethnic group that Paul has in mind. So there's a sense both, I think, of election of Israel on the whole, this ancient people of God, and yet within, not all belong, are Israel. Within this, there's God's salvation work. There's those that will embrace this Messiah. All right, that's an attempt. That's not a helpful, well, hopefully it's a helpful answer. So it's, it's an answer of, well, it's both. So I'm, I'm choosing not to come down firmly in one way, but it's hard to see election and not think what Paul has in mind is some individual sense, but within the context, there's, there's a both seeming there. Number two, how are they beloved on account of, maybe would be the words, or for the sake of, on account of their forefathers? How is it that Israel's love because of their forefathers? And by forefathers, it seems Paul has in mind the patriarchs. Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're loved on account of these forefathers. Now, one commentator, F.F. Bruce, he writes this to make clear what what Paul does not mean. Paul does not mean, and he says this, this is not a reference to the merits of the fathers, the doctrine that the patriarchs' righteousness constitutes a store of merit which is credited to their descendants. He's saying it's not that. God's election to his beloved, it's rather, it's based on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's based on promise, not merit, but promise. You can write this reference down, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. It's one that kind of, an area that came to mind, but it may not be every, uh, there might be more of these. Uh, I think there is, where you just hear this theme. But here, Moses is talking to Israel in light of their deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And he says this, see if you can pick up on it. It says this in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 7, verses 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. That sounds like election, right? Chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8 tells us why. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This oath, you can find it Genesis 28, 26, 22, and in those places there of God talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. An, an oath to multiply them, to give them land. So God's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God gave his word to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God set his love on his people. Verse 29, back in our text in Romans 11, gives the reason. Why can Paul be so confident about what he just said? Verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. Pick your way. It's in this verse, what's not as clear to me is exactly what gifts Paul has in mind here. It talks about the gifts and the calling of God. We'll deal with those first and then the my harder word to pronounce. Gifts. I'm not so clear what does Paul have in mind. Could be, does Paul mean riches of salvation? Certainly the gifts of salvation, the, the free gift, eternal life. It's called a, a gift of God, Romans 6.23. Or we come to Romans 12, God's gifts within the church, that he gives these gracious gifts in the church. If you've got an ESV study Bible, there's a note there saying here's a third kind. Maybe here's a third idea in terms of what gifts is meant here, and they call them the unique, quote, the unique blessings given to Israel. So God's gifts like those to Israel, like we saw chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, they've got the adoption, the glory, covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, those sorts of things. Those are the gifts that he's given to this people in particular, these things, this advantage they have. But then taken alongside this idea, again, of the calling of God, you've got gifts and then the, call, the gifts and the calling of God. Again, it's hard for me to reason that when Paul refers to these terms, he's got something in mind apart from God's work of salvation in the, in the individual. That, that he's got something in mind there towards this elective purpose of God. But again, I think the key word here, it's listed first actually in the Greek sentence, the first word. Probably easier to pronounce in the Greek, actually, but it's this word, irrevocable. Irrevocable. Those gifts, that calling, irrevocable. It's got the idea of something done without regret or something one does not take back. It's not revoked. So I say irrevocable. As far as Israel may seem at the moment, they seem like what? They are an enemy of God. They don't seem like they are. But in light of that, God will not revoke his promises. As distant as they might be, God does not regret his election of his beloved. We may regret giving our word on something, saying something quickly, making a promise, and then, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said we're going to do that. God is not like us. Even think, just think of the, this history of Israel of killing the prophets, and eventually what? Crucifying this Lord of glory. And yet God is not finished with his people. They're a remnant in the now, 
and seemingly, verse 26, seemingly a large hole in the future. So those whom God elects, be it national ethnic Israel or one in individual, their salvation, those whom God elects, they have a sure election. It's God's irrevocable election. Verses 30 through 31 point out God's merciful election. Let's look at this. Verse 30 and 31. For just, Paul just keeps building, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Are you able, I read it a little fast, can you keep track of the logical flow going on here in these two verses? So you Gentiles, try to fill in the you's and the who, who's you here, they and who. You Gentiles were disobedient. It's really the same word as disbelieving, either, either way, which is interesting connection. You Gentiles were disobedient, but you've now received or you've been shown mercy. Why? Because of Israel's disobedience. But God's aim is not at you Gentiles only because then verse 31 says, now Israel, they're disobedient so that the mercy shown to you Gentiles that Israel might be shown mercy. If we can follow all that, it's kind of similar again to verses 11 through 15. Paul's kind of plowed this ground already. But you've got here these key words, disobedience and mercy. In Ephesians 2, Paul addresses the church. He refers to, in, that, in Ephesians 2, he, says, he refers to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's verse 3 of Ephesians 2. These sons of disobedience. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. All in Adam, you could look at Romans 5 as well, I think. All in Adam are all in disobedience. And disobedience or disbelief is deserving of God's judgment and God's wrath. All are in that. Sons of disobedience. We're children of wrath. Disobedience to all even. But then the only hope for those disobedient is to be shown mercy. We've got ESV, it says received mercy or shown mercy. The, the way that Paul talks about mercy here is passive. If that's helpful, it may not be helpful, but that means that something is happening to the disobedient. It's, it's happening to them. They receive it or they're shown mercy. So in other words, we don't mercy ourselves. We don't, I want some mercy, I'm going to get some mercy today. I'm going to go find some mercy and just mercy, mercy. It's given. It's this shown. It's pass, we're passive in it. God is active in it, put it another way. And God does not owe those disobedient. He doesn't owe them mercy or a second chance. The Gentiles' disobedience here was against God and God alone. But even on account of or through Israel's unbelief, they've been shown mercy, that God in his sovereign plan, he took the problem, 
of his own people, Israel's own disobedience, and through this brought and then showed mercy to those who were also disobedient. So verse 30 seems to focus on the mercy of the God to the Gentiles. Verse 31, God's mercy to Israel. And Israel is the disobedient one. The Gentiles are shown mercy so that, there's purpose here, so that Israel too may be shown mercy. And again, if you can see it weaving its way through all this, is God's sovereign hand in the salvation of both Jew and Gentile. I mean, just reading it, you go, how do we, you got to read it kind of slow, just a one time, and then you kind of fill in the blanks here. I, I'm not sure this would be the plan that we would have come up with. Ours, maybe yours, maybe quickly for people, we probably, what would ours be? I mean, pick a people, you disobey and rebel, <laughs> done. Let's move on. Find a new people. But not so with God. And the story of Israel is the story. It's the story of a God who stays his judgment, refrains, he brings judgment for a purpose, but he deals with his people in bountiful mercy and grace to those that don't deserve it, even to those that crucified his son. Judgment would come. Judgment would come for all who who never received, never embraced the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet how true again, Romans chapter 10, verse 21. But of Israel, it says, He, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's mercy. God's merciful. And we see here God's merciful election. All right, lastly, I think it's already seen, but verse 32, again, I kind of, kind of brought it out here. Verse 32, we see God's sovereign election. Look lastly at verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Maybe as we come to this particular verse, we think we're, we're doing pretty good. We're, maybe we're understanding we got it. And then here's verse 32, and you've got God consigning now all to disobedience in order, in order, there's purpose, in order to have mercy on all. We might ask, what is God doing here? Let me give you the wrong answer first. One wrong answer would be to take this verse, consigned all to disobedience, have mercy on all, take this verse, and then maybe blame God for man's disobedience. I mean, if, if God consigns, if, or the word can mean imprisons, if God imprisoned all the disobedience, then sin's not really my fault. I'm not, I'm not at fault. I'm not at blame for my sin. God is, he's the one consigning. He's doing this. But Romans makes clear man is responsible. All have sinned. All are accountable to God. All are under God's wrath for every form of disbelief and disobedience. And yet there's a sovereign way here in which God consigns men and women to disobedience even for his glory. He hardened Pharaoh for his glory. He was crucified by disobedient and disbelieving, disbelieving Israel. And what came out of that? Glory. Glory of Christ. And so he can use disobedience unto his glory as well. 
In the case as you look at this and your questions kind of nag at you, we do have verses 33 through 36 that we'll look at next weekend. To paraphrase those a bit, you could say, boy, how does God consign all the disobedience? So the mercy on all. It's really the question here, who can know God's mind? Who can instruct God in what he should do? God's plan does not wait on you or I for our okay or our stamp of approval. Okay, I get that, Lord. I understand that. Go ahead with that plan. Sounds good to me. God, wait on that. We must even understand everything. We've got even chapters 9 through 11 where we've, there's been some scratching of heads. Everything, God is working out his perfect plan. Our understanding, it's secondary to this, the primacy, this prime sovereign will of God, whether or not we understand it all. Chapter 9, God is referred to as the potter, doing what he will with his vessels that he's made. And here, consigning all the disobedience that he have, may have mercy on all. Now, one more before we kind of part from this verse. One more question. What about the words all here? These words everyone or all might throw us. I mean, does this mean all all, like everyone in the world? Is this referring, maybe Maybe this is referring, some I think would take it as this is God's universal salvation. No need for repent. no need really for anything. God's just going to be merciful to all no matter what. Come Jesus, come not. It does, he's just, he's merciful. Again, the scope of Scripture and the context of Romans and Paul, this can't mean God's mercy in salvation extends to everyone without exception, even though we would say everybody's in disobedience. Again, ESV Study Bible is helpful here. It says here, the word all here, try to kind of follow, the word all here refers to Jews and Gentiles, all without distinction, not all without exception. The sin and disobedience of both Jews and Gentiles is highlighted to emphasize God's mercy in saving some among both Jews and Gentiles. So what's this all without distinction? I think it means here it's all of a certain category of people, as in God will have mercy on both Jew and Gentile. Or you could say it in our day, God will have mercy on his elect in Africa or Canada. As they pointed out, and I think as you look at this and understand this in the context, that's why pulling a verse right out of there and say, see, has mercy on all, it's all. All, all. all is always all. It's in the context you've got what? This back and forth, Gentile, Jew, back and forth, all in that distinctive sense in the context. And God's weaving through these different people to show his mercy. So for clarity, maybe a paraphrase of verse 30, 32 might go, God has consigned all both of the Jew and of the Greek, to disobedience. We're familiar with that language in Romans. He's consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, both to the Jew and to the Greek. That's kind of sense through there. And here, again, is God's sovereign election. He has the mercy. He consigns. We're responsible. How inscrutable are his ways. Next week, we're going to finish this chapter, Lord willing, just a response of worship from Paul. I'm looking forward to, to ending, <laughs> maybe I say that wrong, ending this, this section. Whew. It's a lot of, you know, the bold spots growing maybe, but uh, 
But we're going to look at this, and I think we'll look at it just in one week, but it might be two, but probably one, but just this glorious crescendo. Look at it ahead of time. Study it this week. Enjoy all this. I don't know what, 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 how inscrutable are his ways. Look at who God is. Look at what he does. As we conclude here, though, we've got words like enemies and beloved and election and forefathers and disobedience and mercy. What is it that ties all these things together? What ties all these words, beloved, election, forefathers, disobedience, it's what ties them together is the sovereign hand of a mighty God whose plan is going forth even in the midst of enemies of the gospel, his own enemies, and in the midst of disobedience for the sake, really, ultimately, of God's glory. God's election is sure, is not revoked. His mercy to his elect to save them is sure. We just encourage, by way of application, be very timid, be super slow, 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 to write off those whom God will save in the end. You look at the life of Israel and say, they're done for. They've rejected the Messiah even. God says he's not done yet with them. God will not save everyone everywhere. But I was listening to a preacher this week, Stephen Lawson, talking about the section I just preached on last week, kind of just bringing out, I mean, if God can save Israel, this hardened group, this disobedient group, is he powerful enough to save others very practically around you in your life that you think they are so far off. We think, you know, there is, sometimes we talk, you know, someone is really close to salvation or they're far. We're all far. God brings us close. God's mercy awakens the heart by the Spirit. It's called the rebirth and gives eyes to, to repent and put faith in Christ. No matter this one, as far off as they seem, or maybe this one seems, boy, this is a nice guy, he's so close. I, nice won't cut it. Dis, we're all in Adam, we're all disobedient. God must change the heart. And he does that sovereignly and powerfully and does it in enemies, those, near, those that seem near, those that seem far. But then just bring it to your own heart here. By nature, Ephesians 2 we're the disobedient ones. We're the children of wrath. And yet Ephesians 2 also tells us, many of you have parts of it memorized. It, co- it tells us God is what? It's already been referred to this morning. He is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Have you been shown this mercy of God? Glorify him. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy you've shown. I did not deserve this. I'm, you're here today out of mercy. Mercy and grace out of God's sovereign mercy and grace. How do we take hold of this? One way would be to pray. I don't know if it's the reading for today or yesterday, part of Psalm 130. How do you take hold of this mercy? Here's how the psalmist puts it. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This, the psalmist understands his disobedience, how far he is. Who could stand if you should mark them? But what does he say? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, his promise, his word, I hope. Let's pray together. Father, all glory and praise and honor be to your name for the mercy shown to disobedient rebels gathered in this room together. By your grace, by your spirit, you're transforming us to not look like we once did, and yet how can any of us say in this last week our disobedient, rebellious hearts, that sin nature remaining, fueled up once again, and we lashed out, or we thought something wrong, or we did something wrong, that we've sinned. And yet, Lord, you are gracious and you're merciful. I pray, Lord, that in those times of sin and disobedience, we would remember passages like this, that you can work through those things. And and in the face of disobedience, your mercy shines through because your glory shines through. May we come again as we'll come in just a few moments to your table. Come to your table of forgiveness often, minute by minute, hour by hour, for your grace on our people. We need it. We need your mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift that it is to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.